What we're going to do is take a minute or two and just you in your pew, those of you staying here, let's pray for the peoples in Ukraine. Let's pray for this thing to be resolved. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters to have an effective ministry to others who are in fear that they share their faith in Christ and help those people find some peace. Take a moment to pray quietly or with those around you, but let's have a couple minutes of prayer right now for those folk, okay? Father, how blessed we are to sit here this morning in safety and peace and comfort while other brothers and sisters are huddling with their families, maybe with others, in shelter, fearful of what may happen in the next minutes, in this next few days. And we pray that you give them the peace and you'd give them comfort, that you give them encouragement. We pray especially for the kids, the little ones, who don't understand what's going on. We pray that you'd help parents to have wisdom to be able to help their kids to explain this and to, more importantly, point these kids even to Jesus Christ who gives real peace. We pray, Father, that you would stem the evil of what's going on some way, somehow, that you would turn away this Putin's desires to be this aggressive, that you would work in the hearts of that king, that you would use others around him, and that there would be a peaceful resolution of this and the end to the loss of life. We pray as well, Father, that you would use this as an opportunity, most importantly, to be able to share your word with people. We've known that the Ukraine has been a, just a wonderful mission field these last 20-plus years, and how that's just been uh, just fruitful and prosperous and open to the gospel. And Lord, that breadbasket of that Eastern Europe can be a breadbasket for the gospel. I pray that that would take place now. That those who are there who have faith in you, that they would use this as opportunity to share, to promote Jesus Christ, so that more and more people in the face of this tragedy would turn to you and would repent of sin and make you their Savior and follow you. Lord, in the meantime, use it in our lives. Use it in our country. Help us to take advantage of this situation, to share the gospel of Christ, to share how people, people, would, so people would understand that there is no peace without Jesus. There will be no world peace without Jesus. And that how we need Christ for not only inner peace, but outer peace as well. And so help us to promote that good news, to take advantage. And in the meantime, please help our friends, Help our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in that land under this difficult time. Just work in their hearts. Bless them bountifully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles. We're headed to Genesis 2 and Deuteronomy 21. Genesis 2 and Deuteronomy 21. Usually what we do is we get kicked off with just asking some silly questions. So let me do that. Name something that may be full of holes. Something that may be full of holes. What's that? I'm sorry, I'm deaf this morning. Swiss cheese, what else? Okay, a pegboard, anything else? What's that? Public education. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, you said it out loud, and that's what you're involved in. So, uh, anything else? Anything full of holes? What'd you say? Strainers. Okay, you guys are good. Here's what they had Pennsylvania roads. Okay. Doors, window screens, golf courses, colanders, nets, fishing, an alibi or story, socks and clothing. Number one was Swiss cheese. Name something you've seen your neighbor do outside while wearing a bathrobe. No, the, the neighbor's wearing a bathrobe. Not you're out there watching them, but okay. Walking the dog. Pick up the newspaper. Do they still put out newspapers, by the way? 
Okay, so, okay. Walk to the mailbox. Go to the mailbox. Shoveling snow. snow? For real? (laughs) You've seen it too? Wow. Wow. Somebody said gardening. I can't imagine some of that. Kissing their spouse goodbye. This is washing their car, taking out the trash. I think that was our neighbor, you know, describing what they see me doing. Uh, watering the grass and getting the mail or newspapers, number one. Name something that starts with chow. Chow blank. Chow main. Chow chow. Chow how. Hound. That's up there. Chow down. Here we go. Chow time. Chow down. Chow chow. Chow hound. Chow chowder. Chow chow mein. I sound Chinese, don't I? Chow chow. Here. Other than feet, name something that runs. Your nose. Dog car. The wicked are supposed to. Here's what they said. The clocks, the nylons, the nose, the refrigerator, the engine or car, and a water faucet. Name a place or building. It always seems cold. It's not church. Come on. Name a place that's always cold. Operating room. Oh, that's true. That's true. I've not visited there, but I've heard that's the case. The x ray room. room. (laughs) Uh, Here's what they put down they said an igloo. That makes sense. Okay. Hotel rooms, Department of Motor Vehicles, classroom, work, and doctor's office and things were number one. Now, let's do this one. Okay. No one said church. I want you to notice that. Nobody said church. Okay. Name a place or building that's always hot. Nobody's touching this one? Asana. Okay, here's what they got. Office, old folks' homes. Okay. Okay, they must have been visiting your place, Earl. Okay, what's the temperature at your house this morning? 90? 85. 85. Yeah, he's turned it down, yes. <laughs> Saunas, classrooms, planes, subway train, hell. Number one church due to the hot sermons and the good fellowship. Don't you agree? Amen. Well, you agree on the latter part of the, state, the conversation, okay? Let's do this. You guys, you guys are uh, always a, um, uh, just a fun group to teach and preach. And what we've been doing through this time has been talking about these questions. I want to deal with two goofy questions. But I say goofy, but yet they are very, very important for our culture. I was going to skip over these. But just listening to our culture and listening to what's going on in America, is there more and more of a uh, diversion from traditional male and female marriage relationships? Okay, there is growing thoughts, there's growing ideas of the polyamorous relationships. You can have multiple different relationships. You can be in love with multiple people at the same time. And so getting away, and and it's in our culture, it's becoming normalized. Years ago, we didn't think abortion would ever be normalized, but it hasn't become normalized. Okay. Years ago, we didn't think homosexuality would ever be normalized. Is it normalized in our culture? Yeah. Uh, We'll talk about that uh, after we get through Missions Month. But this idea of polyamorous relationships is becoming just a very hot topic. If you go on the Internet, you'll see that it is being promoted more and more. You can have multiple 
partners and be in love with multiple people. And some are even, some uh, progressive officials are even calling for a change in law that would allow multiple partners in a marriage or polygamy or polyandry if we're going to switch it to multiple husbands. And so it's, it's a topic that we're going to have to answer because in the Bible was there polygamy. Yes. And you're going to be challenged then, how can you say it's wrong if it's in the Bible? And so with that in mind, I want to just take this moment and talk about it. Is it true it occurred in ancient days? And our answer is yes. Okay. But let's talk about this for a little bit. Although it is illegal in most modern societies, there are a few cultures in the world where polygamy is still legal. Do you have any idea of which, which areas where it still is legalized? Muslim countries, Muslim countries where it is still legalized or some that are definitely a third world country. But the countries that still allow for it are mostly the Muslim majority countries. However, less than 1% of the Muslims, even where it's legalized, 1% of them practice it. So you, you want to keep some of this. Don't make some drastic statement that all Muslims are polygamous. That's not true. Okay, But in their faith, they had allowed for it and promoted it. Um, the reason that it is promoted, if, for instance, in those countries, one of their first arguments is the Bible, the Old Testament, contains accounts of polygamy, even amongst those who are heroic figures in the Bible. Is that true? Which ones? Okay, David was a polygamist. Solomon was a polygamist. Any others? Okay, got to go even earlier than that. And this is, he's an important character to Jews and Muslims and everybody. Abraham. Abraham was a polygamist uh, in the sense. So they did happen. There were commendable saints. And the ones that, that we kind of quickly come to mind be that, we, that we would acknowledge, we didn't say Jacob or Alcana. Anybody remember who Alcana is? His wife is the one that we remember. Hannah, Hannah's husband, uh, where she was praying, and then they have saw Samuel as a little boy. Um, and so with that in mind, you have that situation. And there's a term that shows up, concubines. A concubine, when you read in your Bible, she is legally attached to this person, but she is not on the same status as a wife. She doesn't have the same legal status, but she would be one of the harem or one of the, uh, one of the groups of secondary wives would be the best way we put it today. Uh, some people had lots of them, okay? Solomon had, uh, he had like, was it 300 wives and 700 concubines? Yeah, and he was warned not to do that. He would get in trouble. I mean, that's just common sense. You don't do that much. Okay, and so that it's true. And so when people come to you, understand they're coming from a point, especially a, a cynic of Scripture. They're going to come to you and they're going to say, how can you believe the Bible when the Bible promotes something gross like polygamy? Okay, uh, it's going to be there. Okay, and so it's one of those arguments that frequently comes up, according to research I've done, where people are saying, okay, we get these, you know, like Ask the Bible websites, they get this an awful lot. And so we want to make sure that we understand a little bit more. Um, if we understand historically, okay, why polygamy came into practice, we would say this is the common reasons why it became legitimized in some cultures, even in cultures in America for a period of time. Why it was legitimized was, one, in most of those, uh, those viewpoints, 
Uh, ladies are on an inferior level to men. In most of those cases, that's where you start with. Part of it is because in most of those societies, even ancient societies, it was more predominant this way, ladies were very dependent upon men. If somebody was a widow and she had no son to take care of her, what were her options in most, uh, in most ancient Bible cultures? Okay. If they didn't have a relative to care for them, she had to remarry. She had to remarry, or most commonly, she had to become a woman of the, of the street, okay? Uh, and so it was desperation, and it was allowed, because there was, in ancient worlds, there was the protection for ladies was provided by doing this, without the husband, we mentioned that. Polygamy became a status symbol in many cultures, Solomon viewed it that way, not only politically, but it was a status symbol that you could have that many wives, and that was a cultural thing, even today in some of those Muslim countries. As well, polygamy became a diplomatic tool. But there is also this aspect that we aren't supposed to talk about openly, but it's true. There's the idea of satisfying some men's unbridled lust. Okay, that that became a factor. There's another factor that came in historically that promoted it. And that was the, uh, the idea of expanding a population quicker, okay, by multiple wives, which makes sense to you and I, okay? How many, how many kids can a typical woman have in a period of years? Okay, we're talking yearly. Okay, how many children can a man father? Okay, just as many wives as he can gather. Okay, and so you could, you could increase a population quicker and use it as a population tool. And uh, so you can see why some cultures would advocate this. You can see why some religious groups would advocate this if their way of populating and expanding their, uh, their thought is starting to become a majority. Let me have multiple wives and find basis for it in Scripture. And so that's a practice of, is it true that God made allowances for it and, and that the law never directly, directly forbade or condemned the practice? Is that true? Did God ever say to David, you have sinned by taking multiple wives? Anybody remember reading it? Anybody remember reading where God said it to David? It's not there. Did God ever say, um, thou shalt not have more than one wife? Did he ever say that in a negative way? No. No, it's not there in scriptures. Is it there in scriptures that some of his choice servants had multiple wives? Yes. Were they rebuked for multiple wives? Solomon was. But you don't have any comment about Abraham. You don't have a comment about David. And so the people will look and say, well, because God didn't say, you shall not do that, that means... Have you ever heard people use this, that argument today? God never forbade... I've heard this argument. God never forbade that we shouldn't use marijuana or cocaine. Therefore, if he didn't say we couldn't, well, let's do it. Okay, well, if you use that logic, how much, you know, you know, where do we go with it? 
we can go at, you know, ad infinitum. So that's, that's a horrible hermeneutic. But, okay, so I answered this question. If somebody's going to ask me the question, did the Bible allow for it? Did God, you know, did God, um, did he make mention of it? Did he, yes and no is my answer. Okay, the reason be, we have no record of him saying directly to Abraham, Jacob, that they have sinned. Solomon, we do, where there's the rebuke, where I should have qualified that, where the rebuke that you followed other gods because of your wives. But the rest we don't have beyond that. In the Old Testament law, God did talk about, without a negative comment, in these two texts, we're going to look at the Deuteronomy 21 in a moment, but God did say, if a man takes a, a second wife, another wife, if a man has two wives, so there was, quote-unquote, allowance for it in the law, okay? And so we have that. God did explicitly say that the kings were not to multiply wives, that's in Deuteronomy 17. We've seen that several times in David's study that David knew that. And that the king, remember, this is the text that starts off, the king of Israel is supposed to have the law of the Lord. Do you remember in his close proximity, it says next to him, so he can read it on a regular basis? Well, shortly after that, this is one of the commands. You shall not have... You shall not multiply your wives. <clears throat> and we all know that some of the kings violated that. We uh, need to consider several thoughts. And let me say these quickly. Number one, there were a number of godly men who did not practice polygamy. So don't get caught up in somebody tricking you by saying, well, all these heroic men in the scriptures, they practice polygamy. The error in that statement is all of these. Okay? Can you think of godly people, heroic individuals, who we don't know that they had multiple wives, or we know that they had one wife? Okay, several of the prophets are clearly described as having only one wife. What would you say? Moses. Moses clearly had one wife that we're told about. Um, we have others, others that we could put down. Isaac, Moses, Joseph, Job. Um, Jesus obviously did not have any wives, okay, so he wasn't a polygamist, contrary to modern people who say that he married Mary Magdalene or others, okay, the apostles, there's no polygamist mentioned in them. To assume that most everyone was a polygamist is a wrong historical assumption. Let me take it a step further. To assume the practice was common on all levels of society is a wrong approach to historical fact. Okay, if you study historical ancient cultures, it may have been allowed, but it wasn't commonly practiced. Why not? There's a very simple pragmatic reason. It's too expensive. No offense, ladies, but it was too expensive to be able to do it. In mostly, in most accounts historically, polygamy was limited to the rich people. The rich people, okay, uh, those who, are, who, who could afford it. So secondly, here's the thought for you. To assume and justify a practice, just, this, is, this is a biblical hermeneutic that applies here, but it applies in all your Bible study. To assume and justify a practice just because it happened in the lives of godly people is a very poor ethical hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is how you study uh, the Word of God. Okay, it's how you determine things. So if we were to say, well, people in the Bible did it, okay, then it, then it must be okay for me to do it. Where can you go with that? How, how corrupt could you get? Did people in the Bible ever fall flat on their face? Yeah, does that mean it's okay? Okay, 
Did, was David after a man after God's own heart? You better say, yes, okay. But yet, what do we often bring up about David? Bathsheba, okay. Did he ever do any other goofy, dumb things? Yeah, yeah. He murdered Uriah in that case. Somebody else? Any other account with David? He numbered the armies, okay? So we know that David blew it. And it's, does that mean just because David blew it, and did God forgive him? Okay, does that mean then it's okay for us to do? No, no. And so we want to follow this one through. The Old Testament accounts, keep this in mind when you're studying the Bible, they're descriptive, not always prescriptive, okay? In other words, they're describing something. They're not always prescribing something. Because the Bible not only records the good of somebody's lives, but this is the beauty of the Bible. It also records the bad, okay? I mean, I mean it, do, do most biographers, do they tend to reveal everything about people? Not, not most biographers. They usually, based on their bias, if they want to really present this person in a heroic sense, what do they do? They, they forget all the bad, and they present only the good. And so the Bible is very, very descriptive of highlights and lowlights. And so that doesn't mean that everything that it's describing is being promoted. Yes, we're encouraged to learn from the Old Testament saints and follow their examples. James 5, like Elijah was a man of prayer. Good things. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Good stuff. But we're also told in the idea of scriptures that if there was unrighteous conduct, we're supposed to avoid, for instance, the First Corinthians 10, the murmurings and the griping of the people of Israel in the wilderness wanderings. So he makes it clear that the examples are for our admonition and for our correction. They are for a positive and they're for a negative. That's the beauty of the scriptures. Such as we, all, we admire the apostles, but we aren't going to jump on the bandwagon and say we should do everything that Peter did. Can you think of anything Peter did that we shouldn't do? Anybody? Okay, he denied Christ. Anything else he ever did? Cut off the ear when he was supposed to be, be you know, silent. Somebody, okay. Did he ever, was, was uh, Peter ever brash or jumped the gun? Yeah. Did he walk on water? None of us have done that. Did he walk on water? Okay. What happened though? Okay. So we look and we say, okay, we understand that. You guys, you here are, are I was going to say intelligent. That's probably not the right word. You're intelligent. Excuse me. Um, you're smart enough to understand that. But probably the better word is you're mature enough. Because sometimes do young people, does immaturity maturity lead some people to say, well, they did it, so it must be okay. Okay, and you, you've grown enough that you say, okay, you can't do that. So that's that whole discussion. Number three, to assume and justify a practice just because it was addressed in the Old Testament law. This, too, is a poor hermeneutic. What I mean by that is this. Follow this one through. And we're going to get to this text in just a moment. To say God approved of polygamy just because he addressed legal concerns. And remember, the Old Testament law, it's called the law because it had legal ramifications. Yes, no? Not just religious, but did it have legal ramifications? 
such as if you borrowed something and you didn't return it, what was the legal ramification? Yeah, you had to return it. And if you lost it, you had to return it double-fold, seven-fold. It depended on what happened and how you dealt with it. There's, there's different, different passages. Some are four and some are seven and some are... So that, my point is it's a legal code. It talked about you know, in such things as returning. It talked about paying debt. So it wasn't just a religious code. It was a legal code. Is there legal problems if somebody may have had multiple wives? Could there be legal problems? Like what? Okay. Let me give you an illustration. Got multiple, multiple wives, which recreates the possibility of multiple children. Okay, multiple children. Okay, so the guy who has multiple wives, multiple kids, if he dies, who's the heirs? Who's the heirs? Okay. It, well, it, what if one of them was his favorite wife? Okay. And so the law specifically addresses this issue. Why would it do that? Because it was going to become a problem. It was going to become an issue. Isn't an issue today in America? It's, the polygamy isn't, isn't an issue. But remarriage? Can somebody here have children from multiple spouses, okay? Then who are the legal heirs? Can that become a court case in America? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so the Bible addresses that. So it is foolish to conclude that just because God, it is foolish to conclude that God approved of murder, stealing, rebellion, just because he addressed how you handle it legally. Does that make any sense to you? Okay, like in Deuteronomy 1. Well, let me hold it. We're going to get there, and I'll explain. But keep that in mind. Just because it's mentioned doesn't mean he's advocating it. If he's putting up you know, uh, legalities of how this should be taken care of if this occurs. Okay, That's like saying, well, he made, he made clear. What do you do if somebody murders? In the law, he told us how to deal with it. Yes, no? Okay, what if it was an accident? Okay, there, he has some qualifications of just because if it was an accident, should that person be killed, executed because of something accidentally? Okay, and so he makes those different qualifications. Just because he says, if a person takes another life, does that mean if because he take another, he's advocating murder? Yes, no? No. But that's the argument given by polygamists. He mentioned it, therefore, it must be okay. okay. And so, just because he made mention of sacrificing for sin, he isn't advocating sin, but he's made a legal, spiritual qualification. So that's, that's the point there. The very Old Testament passages that people use to encourage or show approval of polygamy are actually very, very poor passages for advocating it. The passage in one of them is Deuteronomy 50, uh, 20, 21. Look at what it says. Deuteronomy 21. If a man has two wives and one beloved and another hated, is that a possibility that somebody could have a favorite wife? Did it ever happen? Who? Okay, the first one that comes to mind is Jacob. Okay, he loved... I'm gonna get, I get the wives mixed up. 
Okay. So, you know, he loved the one, but her sister wasn't as loved. And they had two concubines as well. He had four wives. Okay. And so, was it, is it Rachel and Leah? Rachel and Leah, thank you. And the irony is, who's he buried with? He's buried with Leah. He's buried with his least favorite wife. Um, Anyway, uh, so this could happen. If a man have two wives, one beloved and another hated, they have all borne him children, both the beloved and the hated. And if the firstborn son of hers that was hated, okay, if that's the firstborn, then it shall be when he makes his sons to inherit that which he has, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion. So it wasn't like the firstborn from his most beloved wife. It was just plain the firstborn of all the kids gets the double portion. And so God addressed that. What's interesting in the text is we start off with the word if. We don't start off when as if it's assumed this is going to be a case for everyone. Or since this is going to be a case for everyone. There's an if. But this passage is the one quoted and used, which which I find ironic too. Here are the legal codes to protect the parties involved. We understand that. And any inheritance. Therefore, this is a legal guideline to handle the conflicts that arise from a polygamous relationship. It's not a passage that you should use to say that God is promoting it. God is just acknowledging it could happen because in the context, look at the next couple of verses. Look at down in verse 18. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, okay, it starts the same way. Is therefore that verse advocating you raise a rebellious son? No. Go a little bit further. Go down a, down a couple more passages. Um, if it says, if, a, if verse 22, if a man has committed sin worthy of death, is therefore, because he put it in there and gave a legal re, uh, way of handling it, is he saying, I'm encouraging you to commit sins unto death? No, that, none of us would say it. We'd say that's stupid. That's a foolish way of looking at it. So is verse 15. If a man has two wives, he's not advocating, he's dealing with it. He's giving legal uh, background to it. So he's not promoting it. He's just acknowledging it could happen. And here's the legal code of what you do in that case. Interesting way of looking at it. The very Old Testament passage, another one that people look at. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 8. And they say, he, in this passage, God says, I have given you the house of Saul and his wives. That's That's what the text says. And so, therefore, God was giving David all of Saul's wives. Therefore, it's saying God was promoting polygamy. That's the argument. When you look at the context of that passage and the historical context of what happened, it's very interesting that they would use a text where David is being rebuked for committing adultery with Bathsheba as the proof text for polygamy. Where David is told he's wrong to have taken another man's wife and add somebody here. So it's just, it strikes me odd that you would use a judgmental passage to promote something that God is not promoting. As well, okay, and this is the quote from that text. As well, okay, um, this thought to me. There is never a record in scripture of David actually marrying or cohabitating with any of Saul's wives. 
There's no scripture record of it. There is record that those wives were, were kept by Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who ruled for seven years over most of the tribes, that Saul's wives were with him under his protection, not under, with David in David's quote-unquote harem. There's no physical evidence ever that David had any type of physical marriage or bonding with any of those ladies at all. In fact, when they do list David's wives, not a single one of Saul's wives is listed. As well, did David actually physically have, inherit, own Saul's house or properties? Yes or no? You got a 50-50 chance. Because this, the people who argue say, well, God actually gave the physical wives physically to David. And that's, you can't, the Bible doesn't support that. The Bible indicates otherwise. Well, what about, did David possess Saul's farm, house? You're saying no, why not? He did, that's true. You're absolutely right. He had his own. Is there proof in Scripture that he didn't possess Saul's property? Oh, man, I preached on this. No. <laughs> I mentioned it very briefly. Very briefly. Just to be fair with you, it's, I just glossed over it. Ziba. Z-I-B-A. He showed up in the story. Ziba was the one who was taking care of all of Saul's properties living away from David. Because remember, David relocated in Jerusalem. Saul's territory would have been down by Hebron. And so Ziba is taking care of the territory. Ziba is the one that, call, that David calls because he's the, um, what's the word that we would call him? The arcanomas, the, um, the steward. Thank you. Okay, he would, be, he would be the one that was the manager of the house, like Joseph was over Potiphar. He was the guy, and J, David set, calls Ziba to the palace and says, is there any sons of Jonathan or Saul's grandsons to whom I may show mercy? And Ziba is the one that tells David about, oh, you guys are good, encouraging my heart. Okay, he's the one tells about Mephibosheth, and when Mephibosheth comes, what does David give Mephibosheth. You have authority over all the property. You've got it. It's yours. But does Mephibosheth go and live there? Ziba does. Mephibosheth stays in the palace with David. And then after David runs after the great rebellion and comes back, he had been told that Mephibosheth sided with Absalom. And so Mephibosheth and Ziba come and Mephibosheth says, Oh, great king. And David says, Where were you when I left? Why didn't you go with me? And then he says, Ziba lied. And David's basically like, I don't want to hear anymore. You're going to do what with the property? You and Ziba. This is what I glossed over really quick. You're going to share the rest of the property. And you guys just go and figure it out for yourselves. David never possessed the land. It stayed within Saul's household. So what's that verse mean? If David, if it says, I've given you your master's house and your master's wives, if David never physically possessed 
the houses or physically possess the wives, then what's he talking about? What's that? Okay, he's talking about this idea of, of that whole idea of basically I've given you the throne and the dynasty. The dynasty. Whose family is going to be on the throne? Not Saul's. David's family. So he's using that as a euphemism, as a, um, a collective statement. I've given, I've given you everything that I had promised Saul. Everything that would include an inheritance, a generation after generation being on the throne. It wasn't the idea of I have given you all of his wives physically and I have given you all of his property physically. It was more of a figurative statement that I've given you control of the kingdom and your generations thereafter. Don't use this text. Don't let anybody use this text on you to say it, phys- it proves that, that David was a polygamist with Saul's wives. He never was. He never was. And so those two texts that are used. Here's another one. Old Testament characters who practiced polygamy, who were practicing it, all suffered family conflicts and issues as a direct result. Now, that doesn't mean they were the only ones who had family issues. But can you think of any characters in the Old Testament that had family problems because they had multiple wives? David, David's our obvious one. Okay, what happened with David's, David's family? Okay, you got the different kids from the different wives. That's where the conflicts were. Anybody else in the Old Testament? Abraham, why do you say that? Everything from um, Ishmael and Isaac, it opened up all of the historical conflicts. As you said, the Arab conflict that we see in modern day. Anybody else have conflicts in the Old Testament when they have multiple wives? Okay, Solomon, there's just, that's a no-brainer. Anybody else? Did Jacob have problems? Did his wives have issues with one another? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did, uh, did uh, Elkanah, Hannah is one of his wives, did they have problems in the household? Remember, she's crying at the temple, and one of her, th- her comments to her husband is, I am being belittled by the other wife. And so you have that whole idea that comes up with all these different individuals that it, 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 it doesn't show up in scriptures as this is a really good thing that you should be doing because it's going to solve all your problems. The ideal for a marriage is in Genesis chapter 2. Do you remember what it says in Genesis 2? Okay, we're going there. Genesis 2. This is, this is a critical passage for, for our culture. By the way, this is the critical passage that we need to discuss when we discuss a whole lot of different things like uh, the, the, the whole modern-day gender issue. We've got to be in this text because it's, it's foundational. The whole modern-day gay rights movement. This is, the, this is a critical text. Um, and so it's a critical text in this discussion. Why is that? Because Genesis 2 is the beginning of society. It's the beginning of, it's the foundation stone of all society. Genesis 2 verse 24. Um, you, most of you know it by heart, uh, if I were to start it. It's the previous verse, Adam sees Eve. He says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken on a man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be become one flesh. And so the sermon that we've used out of this over the years is leave, weave, 
leave, weave, and cleave, okay, out of this text. With that whole idea, that's worth a discussion at another moment. This is the verse that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 10, which is really interesting, okay? Jesus doesn't run to the law when he's answering a question about the law. He runs all the way back to the foundation, pre-law. Do you remember what's happening in Mark 10? They are coming to Jesus and they're trying to trip up Jesus. And when Jesus is talking and giving, giving um, codes for how we're supposed to live, these guys that come to him, they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why, why did Moses give us a bill of divorce if divorce wasn't to be promoted? And Jesus' a response. It had to do with the hardness of heart. What he means by that is simply this. It's going to be a part of society as a result of conflict, sin issues that would come, okay, into society. I'm, I'm, and so God didn't do it to advocate it. He did. He gave the bill of divorce to try to restrain abuses that could quickly take place. And did the abuses take place in Jewish society? Do you, do you remember how you could divorce your wife for what? Oh, and, like what? Cooking. Cooking. If she burnt the food, you could divorce legally in the Old Testament law. You don't burn it anymore. <laughs> what about the cookies the other night? They weren't totally burned. <laughs> they, they were just a little harder than normal. <laughs> okay. So, could, could if I were an Old Testament rabbi, could I divorce Deb if she ever gave bad food? Is that an abuse? Yeah, absolutely. What else could you, could you divorce? Deb, you and I are in trouble on this one. <laughs> if they turn old and their hair turned gray, white, okay, could that be a reason for divorce? Yeah, yeah. In the law, it's specifically stated in Jewish code. Not in the Old Testament law, but stated in their code. Okay? And your response is, if their hair goes away, okay, they get, yeah, it's, mine's white, yeah, okay. So they, they abused it. They just went silly with it. And so when he says they gave this law, why did he do it? Not to promote it, but to limit it. Okay, that's what he's talking about in, in Mark chapter 10. And so, uh, you know, he goes back and he says, wait a minute, it's, it was not supposed to be this way. It was supposed to be a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall cleave unto his wife. They, you know, it, it, the idea. And so he takes us all the way back and says this is, this is what is the preferred okay, for, for marriage. That there would be this permanency, this, this relationship that was established. In fact, it shows up in the New Testament epistles. The same verse is used for a foundation of passage dealing with, oops, dealing with, uh, with husband-wife relationships in Genesis 5. Which, let me jump there with that idea. Okay? In the New Testament, like in Genesis 2, it's one man, one woman. In Ephesians 5, it keeps on talking and it says, the husbands are to, three times it says, husbands, love your wives. Three times it says, wives, 
Oh, you don't even want to say the word. Okay. Submit or respect your husband. Okay. And he mentions it three times. And it's never, it never uses the plural throughout the entire text. It never says, husband, love your wives, or why, you know, in that sense, wives love your husband's plural type concept. It's, it takes the plural and moves it to the singular. And so the idea there is clearly the singular relationship. Besides, if you put polygamy in here, then you create this whole spiritual problem that Jesus has multiple brides, multiple churches or groups that he's married to, but we are called one body, okay, one church in that respect. In First Timothy 3, where it says the pastor and the deacons are literally, it says, a one-woman man. Well, clearly, there's lots of other applications, but the clear application is you can't be a polygamist. Can't be a polygamist. So you have those New Testaments. So let, me, let me point out something else. Polygamy in the modern world and culture we live in would be, would be against the law, okay, and the moral laws of our day. I, I think I shared with you when I was in college, there was a married couple, and the married couples lived off campus. A married couple was reported that this young man who had a wife and had a child at home, that he was asking other ladies on campus in this Christian college to go out on a date with them. Well, that kind of freaked those young girls out, that this guy who was a married student was asking. And when the pastor went to talk with him, he said, because in the Old Testament they have multiple wives, and because my wife isn't able to keep up with all the work of having a child and the house, and et cetera, et cetera, I'm looking for a second wife. In America, if he gets a second wife, what, what happens here? Is he breaking legal law? Yeah, okay, and so we know Romans 13, we're to submit to the laws. The only time we disobey the law is when, we, when it has a clear command from the Word of God that says, do this, and the law says you shouldn't. Do we have a clear command in Scripture that says, go and find multiple wives? No, no, there's not a clear command there. So God's not practice, uh, command that. Besides, we're to be a testimony. What kind of a testimony in this world would you be with multiple wives? Even the religious groups that have it, what do most people think about them? Kind of a weird situation? Okay. Let me give you a worldview right now. Uh, and we are going to, and I'm quoting that, that bastion of great uh, worldwide guidance and direction, the United Nations. Um, the United Nations Human Rights Committee, this was just published not too long ago, and I find it very interesting what, they, what the world how they look at polygamy. Their comment, polygamy violates the dignity of ladies. It should definitely be abolished wherever it continues. The world looks at polygamy and says, it's bad. It's bad. So the bottom line conclusion is, why would any Christian, a born-again Bible-believing Christian, even want to consider this? It's just wrong. It's wrong in every end, and truly the Bible deals with it. Our question I wanted to get to is the most commonly asked question. Where did Cain get his wife? It's a no-brainer. His sister or a niece. And then immediately people go, Ugh! Because what's that mean? Incest. How can you believe a Bible that promotes Incest. There's, uh, he didn't have any what? He didn't have no choices, but does that create a moral dilemma? I don't think so. I don't think so. We'll explain why next week, okay? So, no, we won't.
we'll explain April, okay? And then, and then in April we're going to do the transgender and the other thing. We're doing that as well, the other things along with that. Okay, let's get ready for worship. <laughs>